Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is Vice President Joe Biden. Tonight, we'll be getting to know Mr. Biden and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Joe Biden was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1942. He attended St. Helena's School and Archmere Academy in Delaware. Biden then graduated from the University of Delaware before getting his law degree from Syracuse in 1968. He practiced law in Wilmington and served on the Newcastle County Council before being elected to the U.S. Senate in 1972 at the age of 29, making him one of the youngest senators ever to be elected. Biden was re-elected in 1978, 84, 90, 96, 2002, and 2008. During his tenure, he served on the Senate Foreign Relations and Judiciary Committees and worked to write and spearhead the Violence Against Women Act. Biden resigned from the Senate in January 2009 after being elected vice president on the Democratic ticket headed by Barack Obama. The pair were re-elected in 2012. As vice president, Biden traveled more than a million miles to more than 50 countries and was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom with distinction. He is married to Dr. Jill Biden and is a father and grandfather. Vice President Biden, thanks for joining us for conversation with the candidate. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So 19 Democratic candidates in this race and polls put you at the very top, the front runner. Most people say that has a lot to do with name recognition. So what do you have to do as more people pay attention to this race to stay on top? Be myself. Uh, look, uh, the, uh, I'm running. I know why I'm running. Uh, I've been clear about uh, what I would do as president. And uh, the good and bad news is the American people know me pretty well. Um, they, uh, and so it's a little harder to make assertions about me that aren't true, and it's a little harder to cover up things that are really my weaknesses. <laughs> a lot of this campaign is about new ideas. You've been yeah. in politics a very long time. What new ideas are you bringing to this race? A lot of new ideas. For example, and I brought new ideas uh, all along. I brought the Violence Against Women Act no one had talked about. I, I was the guy who came in and uh, moved very heavily to deal with... Uh, how we deal with, you know, foreign policy. Uh, I, uh, um, look, uh, you know, I, I got drug courts introduced in the United States instead of sending people to prison for drug offenses. I, uh, there, there, I, I was able to uh, um, get a assault weapons ban. Uh, no one else has ever done that. Uh, no one's ever beaten the NRA nationally. But the new ideas are ideas that relate to the, you inherit the world that you run in. And because of this president, there's a need for, uh, uh, to deal with new problems that, and it requires new ideas. For example, he's tried to decimate health care, Obamacare. I think uh, health care should be an absolute right, not a privilege. And I think there's a way to do that by restoring the cuts he's made and expanding uh, health care to include a public option so that everyone is covered, uh, uh, making sure. And so there's a whole range of things that are going to require new thinking. We're dealing with a different world. The next president's going to be in a situation where he or she is going to have to put back together an alliance that is being frayed badly by this president. His embrace of 
thugs like like uh, you know Kim Jong Un and and folks like uh, you know uh, uh, Putin and uh, you know so we have a lot to repair and it's going to require someone and I hope I'm the person I think I am who on day one can command the world stage pull together folks and uh, the newest idea maybe that is out there now is I've worked on it my whole career but is a fundamental urgency to deal with climate change and uh, we not only need uh, a climate plan that's going to fundamentally alter our course in the United States to move toward net zero emissions, uh, but, uh, but we have to, we only make up 15% of the problem. We need a diplomat in chief who's going to pull together the other, the other 85% of the problem, those folks who are part of the Paris uh, Climate Accord we put together. And that requires someone who knows these leaders and has confidence, has their confidence. And so there's, it's just a, it's a, it's a slightly different set of uh, requirements. The ideas I have on climate, the ideas I have on healthcare, the ideas I have on how to reinstate the middle class in a way that we bring everybody along, I think are, uh, are as new and as fresh as anyone's and I think maybe fresher. Democrats tend to succeed when they nominate sort of a new and young inspirational leader. So you'd be going against that trend. But do you think that you have to inspire voters with your record? You've had it for a long time here. People are looking at this. Is it fair when people pull out things from the past and re-examine them through a modern lens? Well, yes and no. It's fair to raise anything about my past. Um, but it, if it's, paced, if it's, if it's uh, in context, for example, you know, talk about, people talk about, well, you know, uh, you voted for this provision in a bill and, uh, and, you know, why'd you do that today? It's not popular. Well, look back on it. At the time, there was an overwhelming problem. Teddy Kennedy voted for um, dealing with uh, violent crime in America. Uh, Teddy Kennedy, I mean, so, I mean, it's the context. And, it's a little, and what I'm trying not to do is do the same thing to other people that they're attempting to do to me. Going back and say, well, when you, in 1982, you were uh, this party, or you were said this, or you did that, what's your answer for the future? What do you define as the needs that exist today, and what are you, the candidate, going to do to deal with that problem? It's about the future. And the more we talk about the past, the more we've planned to Trump's hands about uh, um, allowing him to get away scot-free without having discussed the dilemma he will have left, already put this country in and the terrible circumstance we're in uh, if he continues for another six years, five and a half years. Mr. Vice President, thanks for answering these questions. Thanks. The tougher ones await All right. from our town hall audience. After the break, we'll bring Good. in the studio audience to join the conversation. Stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. We have... Our town hall of New Hampshire voters here, they're going to address their questions to the vice president. I'll jump in with some follow-ups and social media questions as we go along. But let's get things started right away with Benjamin Pelletier. Hello, Vice President hey, Biden. Benjamin. This will be my first time voting in a presidential election. This election will be important for many reasons. One of those reasons is the younger generation. As we know, voter turnout tends to be lower for younger people. But it is still important to focus on the younger people in our country. In the future, my generation will have to deal with climate change, high college tuitions, and God forbid, another major war. 
what policies do you have that will help my generation moving forward? Well, first of all, your generation is the best educated, most informed, most engaged generation in modern American history. When I was your age, I was just a few years away from running for the United States Senate. And uh, we were in the middle of a war. We were in the middle of a crisis relative to the civil rights movement. And we were fighting like the devil to see if we could get something moving on, cleaning up the environment and the women's movement. And so every generation has dealt a different hand. And the one you're dealt with is the opportunity to, how, how do we change the circumstance to, to, to the trajectory of the nation, which moves us in a direction now that says that uh, we basically lost our moral bearings. We have a president, in my humble opinion, who has, uh, who has appealed to the most negative aspects of American culture, of, the American, of, of human nature. We've been through this before. We've been there before when that has occurred. He's appealed to white supremacists when, for example, when those folks came out of the woods in Charlotte carrying torches and their veins contorted, their faces contorted, chanting anti-Semitic bile. And a young woman was killed who was opposing the hate and he was asked to comment and he said, well, he said, there are very fine people on both sides. So your generation can own all this. You can change it. If your generation votes in the same percentage the rest of the country votes on, and, and based on breakout in age, you'll be, I think you'll increase by the number of votes, almost 5.2 million additional votes. We lost the last election by basically 73, 74,000 votes in three different states. So you can own it. You have an obligation. We're looking to you to help save us as well, not just yourself. And so the things I focus on are making sure you have access to college that's affordable. You have access, no matter what your zip code is, you have access to an education that doesn't separate you based on your income or whether or not what zip code you're in. I propose we increase the fact that we spend $45 billion instead of $15 billion a year at at-risk schools, Title I schools. Have pre-K, three, four, and five years old in school universally across America. Increase teacher pay. If you, if you, are you in college? Yes, I am. Well, if you're a teacher or a social worker or you're engaged in one of those professions, you're going to work as hard to get a four-year degree, and you're going to get paid less than almost anybody else who graduates with a four-year degree. It's wrong. We desperately need more teachers, for example. We're going to have a shortage of teachers that is exponential in the next five to ten years as the generation of teachers moves now. And so we know things now that we didn't know before. We know, for example, that in fact, if you, get a, if you, have a, you give a child from, a, from a, a challenged background economically access to education, real education, at three or four or five years old, you increase by over 50% their ability to go through all through school without getting in trouble, being able to graduate from high school, not being caught up in the drug culture, not being caught up in crime, et cetera. And it's cheap relative to what we're talking about here. We need more social workers in our schools. Teachers need more help. They're in a situation where we have one, one school psychologist now for every 1,500 kids in school. And so there's a lot we can do, and it's within our wheelhouse to be able to do it. Community college, two years should be free, cutting in half your cost of your college. We should be in a position that, and it goes on. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think the opportunities are exciting, particularly in the area of climate change. We can fundamentally change the trajectory of the nation and the world. But it's not just us. We're, we make up 15% of the problem. 
we can get to net zero emissions by the late 50, the, the, the late 40s, the 2040s, and the 20, and no later than 2050. But 85% of the rest of the world still will be emitting all of the problems. That's why the president and I and others, we put together the Paris Climate Accord. I would immediately rejoin that Paris Climate Accord. I would see to it that we up the ante. The first thing I do is president invite all, and I know these world leaders, almost every one of them I know personally. That's been my job most of my career. And I'd invite them to Washington and do what the accord calls for, up in the ante, making increasing the commitment to deal with climate change. Investing $400 billion instead of another $400 billion tax cut for the top 1%, a $400 billion investment in technology that deals with the technology to deal with climate change, the, deal, the, the technology to deal with getting carbon out of the air, the technology that we can then be the net exporter of and lead the world. So there's so many things we could do. And if I were you, I'd look at it as not only a problem, but incredibly exciting, the contributions we can make. There's no reason why we can't lead the whole world again with guys and women like you. I'm not being solicitous. I really yeah. mean it. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. Next question comes from Terence Guinarain. Thank you for being here, Mr. Terrence. Vice President. Um, growing up as a child in Guyana, my grandfather used to tell us stories that God made the United States. He told us the about the wonders and freedoms in this country. I live my life striving to become an American citizen, and I'm proud to have achieved that goal. I'm glad as you president. Chose what will you do that future grandfathers will continue to share their stories of our great nation? I've been to Ghana. I've been all through Africa. And one of the things everybody has to remember, that we are, we have led the world, not just by the example of our power, but the power of our example. We have been that shining city on the hill, for real. And every generation that's come here, whether it was my great-great-grandfather Owen Finnegan getting on a coffin ship in the Irish Sea in 1849, or you coming from Ghana, everybody who's come had to have courage. It took real courage to decide, I'm going to change everything that I know. I'm going to leave everything that is comfortable to me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a risk. These are the people that I, I was with a world leader in, in Singapore. He was asking me because I know Xi Jinping more. I've spent more time with Xi Jinping in China than any world leader at the time. And he said, tell me about Xi Jinping. What's he like? And I looked at him and I said, tell me about what's going on in China. He said, China's in America looking for the buried black box. It was when that aircraft went down in the Indian Ocean. And I looked at him like you're looking at me, particularly the way you're looking at me. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I beg your pardon, Mr. President. I don't know what you mean by the buried black box. He said, the box that contains the secret that allows America to be the only country in history to constantly be able to remake itself. Think about that now. We've constantly be able to re been able to remake ourselves in the last three centuries, but two plus that we've been a country. And folks, I looked at him, I said, well, I'm getting old enough now, Mr. President, to tell you what I think it is. Number one, in America, our children are taught not to worship at the shrine of orthodoxy. That's why we make new things. We break old things. That's why we're the most innovative people in the world. That's why other countries think we're kind of the ugly Americans. We think we can do anything, and we can. The second thing, though, I'll think about this, is that I said there's been a constant, unrelenting wave of immigration to the United States since the early 1700s from every continent, every continent in the world. Other than those folks who were put on ships and sent from Africa, which is the original sin of America, 
Everybody who came here came with a sense of resilience and purpose and determination. So we've been able to cherry pick the best of every single culture in the world, not hyperbole, think about it. Every single culture in the world, we pick the best because it takes courage to get up and move and leave everything you know. And so that's why we owe you, we owe your father, and that's why it's so critically important. We have to continue to be the beacon for the rest of the world. I really mean it. I really mean it. That's why we're who we are. And so I think your father, God love him, did he ever make it? My grandfather was an American citizen also. Oh, it was your grandfather yes. who said that. I'm sorry. Well, well that's, you know, it, but think about it. Think what it took to leave. Everything you know. And, 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 the, and we had a welcome sign up saying, come, come, come to America. That's why asylum is so important. People escaping persecution, people escaping circumstances that they have no alternative to deal with. That's what we're about. That's who we are. That's what America is. And folks, you know, we all, t we all brag about the Statue of Liberty. Remember why it was given to us. Send me your, and it goes on from there. We're the most unique nation in the history of the world. That's what's made us who we are. Thank you. And thank you for, for the question. Right, next question from I'm John sorry. Wentworth. Joe. Good evening, Mr. Vice Good President. Evening. As a senator in 1994, you helped write the crime bill that created harsher federal sentences and rewarded states that toughened their sentencing laws and instituted mandatory minimums. Your recently released criminal justice reform plan points in the opposite direction and includes a $20 billion grant program aimed at reducing incarceration. Could you explain how or why you came to have such a change in your approach to criminal justice? The world changed. Number one, let's get something straight. The crime bill did not in increase minimum mandatory sentences. The crime bill did not. The Biden, so-called so Biden became the Clinton crime bill. And what it did was, there were two pieces in it that I didn't like at all, and I argued strongly against them. One was the three strikes and you're out, which very few people were convicted on, but nonetheless, it's a bad policy. And number two, the idea that carjacking would automatically be a mandatory minimum sentence. What it also had in it, though, and it did have the provision to build more state prisons. I opposed all three of these in the bill. I opposed the state prison. And by the way, 92 to 94 prisoners in behind a bar now are in a county, a city, or a state prison, not a federal prison. And Barack and I reduced the federal prison population by 38,000. But here's the deal. What was in the bill mattered a lot. And everybody who now went after the crime bill, we had a crime wave that was incredible. Everybody voted for it. The Black Caucus voted for it. Teddy Kennedy was one of the chief co-sponsors. I don't know him as a hang him high guy, you know? And so what happened was it brought down violent crime significantly, particularly in African-American neighborhoods. That's where the call was coming from mostly. I come from a state, unlike yours, that has over eight, what's well, the eighth largest black population in America. Almost 20% of my state is African-American. I come out of that civil rights piece. The point I'm making is that at the time, it did what it was supposed to do, but it had provisions that I didn't like. But there were provisions I liked a lot. Number one, I'm the guy that came up with the community policing idea. Cops in the street. Crime went down, and it went down, and also pe fewer people went to jail in black communities. Because guess what? The cop had to get out of his car and know the people on the street. No, 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 not a joke. 
You had to, to get one bit of help from the federal government, you had to convert your whole police department to community policing, not just riding through the neighborhood, not jump squads. You had to get out. You had to know the local liquor store owner, the local grocery store owner. You had to give people your name and say, if there's a problem, call me. This is my cell phone. You got to know the community. There's that famous expression used by a former commissioner in, in, uh, um, in uh, California and then later in New York, where he said, there's a greeting in Africa, one of the African tribes. And it starts off and says, I see you. I see you. Meaning, I understand, I know who you are, I see you. And these police officers were getting out of their vehicles, men and women, and saying, I see you, basically. So they know the difference between the young man in the corner who had a hoodie on, whether he was the next po poet laureate, or he was somebody belonged to a gang. He'd see them. That was the idea. Secondly, it had the Violence Against Women Act, the proudest thing I've ever did, and I wrote it. I'm the guy that wrote that act. Thirdly, it had in it the f I'm the only one to ever beat the NRA. It eliminated assault weapons with the help of Dianne Feinstein. It also went on and made sure that we had background checks, universal background checks. It also said you could not have in a clip in a, in a weapon more than 10 rounds. And I got the living devil kicked out of me in my state because a big gun owning state, but it was the right thing to do. So there were a lot of really good things in it. And there was 30, there was almost $9 billion for prevention. It set up drug courts. It said you weren't supposed to send them to jail. You were supposed to send them to drug court. But so all those things everybody forgets. And then what happened was we lost an election. And guess what? They didn't fund the drug courts. And then they didn't fund. They dropped the assault weapons ban, et cetera. And by the way, unless you guys start to speak up, we're going to lose the Violence Against Women Act. It has to be reauthorized by Friday. And every, have you heard anybody talking about it but me? Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a phenomenal, considerable impact on people. And it's going to lose because the Republicans and this president will not reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. So th there were mistakes in the bill. And I acknowledge it. But I had a choice. Do I let the whole thing go down that took me years to get done? Or do I, in fact, let the, it go forward because the good far outweighed the bad? The reason, anyway, so there's much more to say. I'm already saying too much about it, but this is something that, that if you notice, the people who are criticizing me now in my own party about this are also saying, I support community policing. I'm really for the Violence Against Women Act. I really want to make sure we can take on the NRA and beat them. I really think it's important that we have drug courts. I'm the guy that did that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the question, Joe. We want to get one more in. About sure. uh, two and a half minutes left here, Mr. Vice President. Yes Let's go to no, Mr. Berkelmack. I'll yeah. try to keep it easy. Welcome to New Hampshire, Mr. Vice President. Good to be back. A beautiful state. Thank you. How will you restore civility in both the executive and legislative branches of our government? Simple. Folks, look. You know, when Barack and I, when, when the president, I, I say Barack to distinguish him from the president, okay? <laughs> um, but when President Obama and I took office, the thing that I'm proudest of, and he is too, is we went through an entire eight years without one hint of scandal, not one breath of scandal, and treating people with decency. I learned a lesson a long time ago, most important lesson I learned in public life, that it's always appropriate to question another man or woman's judgment, never their motive. Once you say the reason why you disagree with me is you're in the pocket of boom, 
we can never get to go. We can never get to an agreement. And so it starts off by treating other people with decency, not attacking motive, saying, I think you're dead wrong about your position, Senator so-and-so, on not reauthorizing the violence against women. I don't say you're against this because you beat your wife. I'm being a bit facetious, but you understand what I'm saying. It requires civility. And one of the things, by the way, we all have to do, think about it. When's the last time there was a serious storm and your sewer got backed up and you wanted to thank the guy who kept the sewer from flooding into your... I'm not joking. I'm being deadly earnest. And thank you for the job they've done. Or you got a storm and the person's climbing up in the middle of the storm hooking up that generator. When's the last time you around and said, thank you, thank you? It's about being civil. It's like those commercials, you know, opening the door. A combination of a whole lot of things has put us to the position where we're not acting like who we are as a people. There's an American creed. It's about decency, honor, respect, leaving no one behind. I really mean it. Think about it. Think about it. We haven't always lived up to it, but it's been the essence of who we are. You need help? I'm here to help. We're not doing it. So I would not, I, I would not in any way engage in the character assassination arguments that um, politics have become too mean, too dirty, too, and you want to really change politics? Mm -hmm. Take private money out of elections, mm -hmm. public financing. Sure. I proposed that almost 30 years ago. Term limits, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. This is 30 minutes commercial free, and we're gonna get right to the questions with Paul Dosher. Hey, Paul. Welcome, Senator, I mean, <laughs> Mr. Vice President Senator's and Senator, you've been me, both, sir. yeah. Um, Welcome to New Hampshire. Uh, I've been in environmental conservation my entire career, and I have been frustrated and angered by the environmental policies and, and actions of the current administration. And I could ask you about 20 different questions about that, but they only gave me one. So I'm going to stick to climate change. Do you support the concept of a carbon fee and dividend program as proposed in the Energy Innovation Act, now in Congress, a bipartisan bill, by the way? Yes. And why or why not? Yes. I do because look, one of the things we can do is, you know, right now, look at what's going on. Right now, the Amazon's on fire. It's the largest carbon sink in the world. It, it, it absorbs more carbon from the air than every, we took every single solitary automobile in America off the road. Now, why can't we, through science and technology, move in a direction where we turn agriculture into the first industry in the world that can be carbon neutral, carbon free. We can provide cover crops. We can make sure farmers get paid for planting cover crops. We can develop crops that have much deeper roots that in fact can absorb the carbon and take it deeper. There's so many things that are in our wheelhouse and it creates an enormous, maybe, I'm too much of an optimist. I've always been an optimist my whole life. I think this presents an enormous opportunity, not only to get it right, but also to create millions of new, good, paying jobs. For example, why, why, why don't we have, I, I propose within the next 10 years and sooner, 500,000 charging stations on new green highways and pathways. We can own the electric vehicle market, own it. 
We can generate. I'm, I'm the, I come from an automobile state. It used to be. It's wiped out now. But I'm the guy that got blamed for us saving General Motors. Remember that whole thing, Biden? Is, well, guess what? It saved tens of thousands of jobs until the management made a lot of very bad decisions again, in my view. And what's happening now? If we were able to reclaim and become the leader of the, of, of the, of the market for electric vehicles, we create literally tens of thousands of good paying jobs. We become a net exporter of technology and capability. I take a look at the things that are within our wheelhouse. We can have, we, we have DARPA at the, at, at the Defense Department. Well, we, we can have an ARPA climate provision. DARPA, by the way, is the outfit that went up and they do independent research, it's applied science, and, and guess what? They're the guys that, and folks and women came up with stealth technology about the, the, the internet, a whole range of things that came out of the brilliant scientists we have. Why aren't we investing the same kind of intellectual resource like you possess and you come from? I'm not being solicitous. Why aren't we investing in that? What are we doing? It not only is needed to save the planet, but it's needed in order for us to be able to generate economic growth. I look at every single fundamental change we've had in technology. What has it done from back to the Industrial Revolution when the Luddites were roaming the Midlands of England, smashing the machine because they're changing the culture? We always were able to bend it into making sure it affected everybody positively. This is one of those chances, in my view. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, you guys were the ones that got me going back in 1973. I, got, I ran the first time. And the reason I ended up getting so deeply involved, I had no plan running for the Senate. I come from very modest means. I'm the first senator I ever knew. It wasn't like Joe Biden was going to be. No, for real. Uh, and, but here's what it was. I'm the guy that introduced block legislation through zoning because I was a county councilman. Our, our state is made up of three counties. The largest one has over 60% of the population. And it's called Newcastle County. They were building a new oil refinery along along the, uh, uh, the Delaware River. I blocked it by zoning. They, everybody went nuts, but guess what? It ended up resulting in the Coastal Zone Act, the only outfit in the whole damn country that at the time said you cannot build within two miles of the wetlands, period. Preserving, preserving forever. You know, it's the same thing like, I grew up in a little town called Claymont, Delaware. You, you've heard, if you're in this business, you know Marcus Hook and Chester more refineries than any place at the time, including Houston in that hook in the river of the, going up to Philadelphia, making, taking care of 10 million people in the Delaware Valley, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, and some parts of New York. And guess what? I'd get up to be taken to school in the morning by my uncle, which is only five blocks away up a major highway, and he'd turn on, when the first frost, turn on the windshield wiper, there'd be literally an oil slick in the window. Not a joke. My state was listed as one of the, had the highest cancer rate in the country. It's all because of those prevailing winds. They're all, the reason Pennsylvania didn't know much about it, the winds weren't blowing west and they weren't blowing north, they were blowing southeast. You know, the same way with, you know, pollution, you know, o uh, ocean dumping, the Arctic Preserve. I mean, there's so many things we had to fight so hard to get from the time I was a kid in politics. And today, this guy now, guess what? No, no, no more methane restrictions. What's going on? So holler, keep hollering, man. And folks like you know it. You've forgotten more about the subject than most of us who tried to learn a lot know.
Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank no, you. I really mean it. We have a social media question coming in, Mr. Vice President, from Taylor Bebo. He asks, do you agree with the D.C. versus Heller decision in regards to protecting the individual right to bear arms that are in common use and which are utilized for lawful purposes? I, the answer is I think you can. I, I, I would, I, if I were in the court, I wouldn't have made the same ruling. Okay, that's number one. But let me explain where I am on the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, for example, the First Amendment, freedom of speech. If any one of you stood up and yelled fire, you could be arrested. You have a freedom of speech to say fire, but not in a crowded forum where people would try to get out and maybe someone get hurt tripping over one another. Every constitutional amendment has a limitation. In the, and I taught for years constitutional law and separation of powers. I taught the Second Amendment. And the Second Amendment is not absolute. And we can argue, and the fundamental argument is well-regulated militia and all those things. I won't get into that. I think the, the fundamental argument is the reason that was given as a right is because we needed to be able to muster people to deal with an enemy called Great Britain we were fighting in a, in a war. But hey, that's a different matter. But here's the deal. We've never argued that you can own any weapon you want. It's never been the case that anyone can own any weapon they want. If you are mentally deranged, if you are uh, psychopathic, if you are someone who is 12 years old, if you are someone who has a criminal record, if you are a wife beater, it's always been a, you, we can deny you the right to own a weapon, period, any kind of weapon, a honey weapon, any kind of weapon, because you are not a stable citizen in the minds of the American people. Secondly, We've always been able to say what kind of weapon you can have. Now, I know some of you in New Hampshire, like Delaware, the tree of liberty is water with the blood of patriots. I get that. But guess what? If that's about being able to protect yourself against the government, you need an F-15. <laughs> I mean, a, a jet, you know. <laughs> you need a bazooka. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm being, try, try to be rational about this. You need a weapon that's compatible with the government you want to, is going to abuse you if that's what you think the purpose is. Does anybody think anybody has a right to own a bazooka, a flamethrower, a machine gun? I'm not joking. So why in God's name do you say there's an absolute right to own a weapon that is semi-automatic, that is a military-style weapon designed for one reason, to shoot and kill people in war, that can hold up to 50, 70, 100 rounds of ammunition. As I said back home when I was getting beat up for supporting this, I said when I, I'd, I'd go through the streams where everybody fishes down my way, the sportsman's clubs I'd go to, and I'd say, look, if you need 100 rounds, you shouldn't be hunting. You're really dangerous to yourself. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Not a joke. Look, this is about talking common sense. And so I think... And that's why I led the fight to pass the Brady Bill. The Brady Bill were the background checks. He was the former secretary, the former press person for my colleague Bill Roth, and then went on to Ronald Reagan. When, remember, he got shot. And, well, you know, it is, it's rational to say certain people shouldn't be able to own a weapon, period. Secondly, it's rational to say there's certain kinds of weapons you can't own. They have no social redeeming value. They have nothing to do with sportsmanship or your right to own a, weapon, a gun. And by the way, I have, with my, my son who died, uh, and, excuse me, anyway, my, my, my son, Bo, he, he, was a, he was a decorated veteran, 
uh, the Conspicuous Service Medal, the Bronze Star, et cetera, a year in Iraq and spent time in. Anyway, he had three shotguns, and I have two. I, had a, I, I have a 20 gauge and a, and a 12 gauge. I'm not a hunter, I'm a skeet shooter. My dad used to be a hunter, but I'm a skeet shooter. And I haven't done that, in, in all fairness, for nine, 10 years. Not because of anything other than I just have lost interest. But imagine, I have, and I have five grandchildren. Well, guess what? Those guns are locked up. Locked, locked. Why is it that if you left the key in the car outside here today, and a kid goes in and starts that car, 14 years old, gets in an accident, accidentally kills somebody, you are civilly liable for your negligence. Why in God's name should you not be required to have trigger locks on your weapon? Why? Sandy Hook wouldn't have happened had that mother had those weapons, which she apparently was entitled to own. She, she passed the test, and the kid comes along. And he picks them up. Why shouldn't he be required to have a trigger lock? What, what's, so this is an irrational argument. And the biggest problem is not the NRA. The majority of NRA members agree with us now, with me now. Well, guess what? It's the gun manufacturers. They want to sell more weapons. You know, we have a technology. The last thing I'll say. We have a technology now. You can make sure you cannot, James Bond-like, you can't pull a trigger of a gun you have unless your biomarker is on it. That's developed. It exists. Well, guess what? I met with the folks out in Silicon Valley who developed these, and they started to sell them in several gun stores, chains. Manufacturers came along and said, if you don't take them off the rack, we're going to boycott you. So they took it off the rack. How do I violate your Second Amendment right? whatever weapon it is you're entitled to have, if you're the only one that can pull the trigger. How does that violate your right at all? So this isn't about that. It's about selling more guns. It's about profit. And I think it's dead wrong. We have an epidemic. Next question, Mr. Vice President, comes from Elizabeth Radisich. Thank you for being here tonight, Vice President Biden. It's, a, it's an honor to, be here, honor to meet you. Um, so, Regarding your recent misstatements about the Iraq war, uh, you've asked war voters to listen to your judgment rather than the details of your story. And as a mom and as an educator, I feel like details matter. So can you please explain why you didn't remember the details of these events accurately? And will you going forward be more accurate with your details? I think you're mixing two things up. Okay. Number one, what you're talking about in the Iraq war, I voted to give President Bush the authority to go to the UN and ask for the Security Council to vote to send in inspectors into Iraq to see whether Saddam Hussein was keeping his commitment on chemical weapons and keeping his commitment on whether or not he was developing nuclear weapons. The argument was he was doing both because he had thrown out inspectors. And the condition on that was Dick Luger and I started off and we had a provision. We said it was called the, the authorization for the use of force. And we said that if in fact you in fact go in and get either A, the Security Council does not vote to give inspectors a right to get back in, you still have to go back to them and ask them whether or not you can use force to get the Security Council behind the use of force, just like 
President Bush's dad had done when he went in. And I opposed that. I voted against that. Now, what happened was, what, what people are saying is when I said from the time I said I made a mistake trusting that he would not use the force. That was my mistake. And I said from the time of, of, of awe and shock and awe, I was against the war. What was the case was I argued that the way we went to war was wrong, number one. And number two, the way we were conducting the war was wrong. The, the extent to which I misspoke was my public statements were that we were doing this all the wrong way. We should not have done it the way we did it, and we should be supporting the troops if they're in there, but we should be getting an international coalition to support this, etc. And so the misrepresentation was how quickly I said I was immediately against the war. I was against the war internally and trying to put together coalitions to try to change the way in which the war was conducted. Ambassador Bremer will point out to you, I was his worst nightmare when I showed up in Iraq because I thought the idea of Iraq being a united democratic nation, Shia, Kurd, and, and Sunni being one, one all together as a democratic institution, I said it will not work. The only way this can possibly work is if you have a regional judgment, a federal system. That's why Les Gelb, who just passed away, and I wrote a piece saying this is a mistake the way we're trying to unify Iraq under one single leader. It's never been unified. It was never there. It was a mistake to try to do it. But when the troops were there, I insisted that they be protected and they have all that they needed while they were there. My son was there for a year in Iraq, not at the time after this. What happened was, immediately after us getting elected, what did occur was the President of the United States when, and he was wise enough to vote not trust Bush and vote no, period, okay? The deal was if he votes no and lets the inspectors in and there's nothing going on, then there's no use of force. That, that, was the, that, 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 that was the commitment made. But remember when in, it turns out there weren't any nuclear weapons. Remember that whole thing? And you go back and look what I said. I said, I don't see any evidence that there's nuclear stuff. Oh, anyway, turned out we were right. They're misrepresented, or at least unintentionally misrepresented. So what happened when we got into office, in the first major meeting we had with the entire national security team, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, National Security Advisor, et cetera, the, national, the DNI Director of Central Intelligence, et cetera, national intelligence. And the, they came and said, Mr. President, we've laid out for you, we'd have a, a morning meeting every morning, every single morning on national security in the Oval. And he said, they said, we have a plan how to make your position about getting out of Iraq work and consistent with you. And he leaned over and the joke was, he leaned, you know how he always puts his arm out, the, the pre Obama, President Obama? Well, I sat to his right and he leaned out and he said, no, Joe will do Iraq. He'll get us out. And I coordinated. I was then, I said, that's not a way to win friend influence people, you know, tell them Joe's going to do this. <laughs> but everybody knew I wasn't trying to take operational control, but I, because I knew all those players better than he did because I'd been around longer. And we coordinated how to draw down. I was able to draw down, at the request of the president, over 140,000, 155,000 combat troops. Then got criticized for that, as you recall, for bringing down the troops. But it was the right thing to do. So the misrepresentation was my saying that 
First, the mistake was voting in the first place to trust the judgment. Mm -hmm. The second mistake was that my saying, and I was immediately opposed. Internally, I was opposed. And I did say things like, this is not the way to do it. The way we went to this is the wrong way. We didn't have a coalition behind us, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the context in which that was said. Thank you. And details do matter. Thank you. But they don't <laughs> matter if you forget whether you're in Vermont or New Hampshire. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question comes from Laura Landerman Garden. Hi, Laura. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. It's an honor to see you again. Thank and you. I got to tell you, I'm a little starstruck. Um, but I think I can. I, I am too in front of him. I <laughs> <laughs> like you, many of us here in the studio are parents um, and grandparents. And we would do anything, right? For our children, we would move mountains. There are treasures. So many in our country, our so many children and teens in our country are not getting the health care they need which I know that you've addressed for years to try and help fix that. I'm a psychologist as well as a parent and a grandparent, thank you. And I am very concerned, to say the least, about the accessibility of mental health care for our children. And I know that that is something near and dear to your heart. What would you do, what kind of priority would you make to have accessibility for mental health care, not just for our children, but for everyone in America? number of things. I'll tell you what, I won't go back to the record and what I did do or tried to do and what we did or tried to do, but tell you what I think should happen. The fact of the matter is that, uh, as you know as a psychologist, we have learned so much more about how the brain functions. We learned, for example, that what's happened in the beginning, everyone had thought that maybe the drug abuse 10, 15 years ago caused mental illness. Mental illness tends to cause drug abuse. It's the opposite way we do this. And so here's the kinds of things we have to do. We have I've pushed very hard with a lot of people, not alone, to increase the number of mental health centers around the country that are available to every part of the country, particularly the rural parts of America, which lack it badly. badly very badly. Very badly. Number one. Number two, in the, in the, in the Obamacare, in the Affordable Care Act, we equated mental health and quote physical health. They're all physical health. There should be no distinction. And one of the things we've gone out of our way to do is to try to make sure that we do not stigmatize people who in fact seek help. One of the things that are people are most afraid of is they go and get mental health or they go see a psychiatrist or psychologist or get committed to because they need some extended help that they're going to ruin their lives. It'll be over. We've got to change that stigma. There is not a single getting mentally help, getting a mental illness is nothing fundamentally different than getting a physical illness. It's like breaking a bone. We should not stigmatize it. We should not be engaged in it. That's one of the things I so resent about this president, the way he talks about people and the way he talks about mental health. Thirdly, in the Affordable Care Act, we equated mental health and physical health. So they both be covered. They both would be covered equally, equally. You couldn't say, well, I'm going to use the Affordable Care Act because I want to get a psychiatric examination for my child or for me or my husband. It should be covered. It was designed to be covered. I carry with me, I hope I have it because I'm emptying my pockets here. I carry with me every day a card, my schedule. And the schedule says what I have to do, and it has a black box on the bottom here. 
the black box every single day for the last 14, roughly 14 years, lists the daily troop update, the exact number of troops who've died in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's today 6,895, not over 6,000. Every one of these people, every one of these fallen angels left an entire community behind and deserves to be recognized for the sacrifice. It lists troops wounded in Afghanistan and Iraq, 52,877. But you know what's not on here? You know, Doc. Roughly, roughly 300,000 warriors, men and women, coming home with traumatic brain injury and or coming home needing mental health actions and facilities. We're short, what, how many, 39, 49,000 psychiatric nurses? And I got misquoted the other day by saying more people are dying from suicide coming home from these wars than are being killed on a daily basis now. They said Biden said more people have died of suicide than have died in war. That's not what I said. They're roughly running about 20 people. Anyway, I don't want to quote a number because someone's going to say I got it wrong. Well, it, is, it is 20 plus. Some research is saying it's 20 plus a day active duty and veterans. And veterans. Suiciding. And, 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 and so, so it's a gigantic issue. And by the way, even if someone is cold-hearted and doesn't care and doesn't think we can learn much, that's why we did the whole brain initiative in, 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 at the NIH. That's why I'm proposing that we set up an ARPA-H where we, in fact, decide, get the lead. I, I headed up the cancer effort and for, and, and, uh, for the president, the moonshot. And then after I went to the administration and said, this is what we, we made significant changes. We got Doc starting to work a little more together. They didn't play very well in the sandbox originally. <laughs> but now there's cooperation going on. We're making significant breakthroughs. We used to think, for example, there was one, when Nixon declared war on cancer, he meant it. But he had no army. He had no capacity to share data. Hospitals didn't have a way to share the data. But all these years later, when my son was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, I had the opportunity to go around the world and throughout the country, leading, meeting with the leading experts in the world. Five years before he was diagnosed, no one, everybody thought that the idea of dealing with your immune system to be able to cure cancer was some kind of voodoo science. Now immunotherapy is a gigantic potential breakthrough that's going on now. Well, people are starting to cooperate and share data. You got five drug companies up here all trying to get the same exact particular, you know, we, we can now sequence a cancer gene and we can do it for a thousand bucks. He found out exactly the nature of the cancer you have. Not just where it is, but what it is. But guess what? If we put all those, all those research you're, that you're doing, each of you doing, dealing with one of the 104 specific cancers requiring d different therapies, on the table and said any expert committee can use any of them because we're realizing now that what happens is it may be like AIDS. It may require multiple drugs. And so what, what, so what, what I came up with, I didn't come up with, I asked for the experts to come up with. They came up and said, okay, the drug you're working on, if it worked, it'd be worth about 28% of, of, of a cure. Yours would be 20, yours would be 31, yours would be whatever. So you're all signing on now and saying, oh, and you're exempt of liability. You lay them on the table and all these experts can come in and use them now. Because that exponentially increases the possibility of a breakthrough. So there's so much happening, so much happening. And brain, we know less, the, the phrase often used, we know less about the brain than we do know about the bottom of the ocean. 
Now, whether that's literally true, it's a metaphor that's always used. So we have to, that's why we spend so much time and money at NIH trying to invest in research of the brain. It holds the key to so many things. It does. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Laura. very much. Another great mental health question from Dr. Landerman Garber. On that subject, one of the sources of mental health problems can be unaddressed grief. You've had to go through tremendously public grieving processes in your life. So what's your message to Americans who are grieving privately to avoid becoming consumed by that grief? Well, first of all, reach out. Try to get some help. Um, look, uh, um, right after I got elected, I got a phone call when I was hiring staff. I wouldn't even know what to be sworn in. And at that time, I'd, by that time, I turned 30. And December 18th, I was in Washington. And Teddy Kennedy let me use his office to interview staff. And uh, I got a phone call on a poor first responder. She was so nervous. They had her call me and said, you got to come home. There's been an accident. And um, a tractor trailer had broadsided my wife and three children Christmas shopping and killed my wife and killed my daughter. And my two boys were really very badly injured. It took the jaws of life a long time to get them out to save their lives. And um, I was lucky. I had people around me who cared a great deal about me, embraced me. People who I never knew called me and said, I know, you know, the worst thing when you have something bad happening and people say, I know what you feel like. Well, if they've never experienced it, you know they have no idea what it feels like. You, almost, you know they mean well, you almost feel like saying, stop. But people would call and say, I know what it is. I lost. I, this happened to me. And let me tell you what helped me. And one of the things for me that I found was having people I could talk to openly and share my grief with. And uh, for me, it was a little different because I kind of had to do it in public. Because I was this, you know, it was like the, uh, you know, this young guy with a beautiful family gets elected, and he's the youngest senator, and then he's, you know, this, this tragedy, and so it was, well, you know, I think of all the people who didn't have any of the kind of help I had, didn't have any kind of support like I had, that in fact get up every single day, put one foot in front of the other, and go and do it. But what I urge them to do I urge them to try to at least get to somebody who they know has been through it. Talk to how they dealt with it. It helped me. You know, when you've been the recipient of so much empathy, it's not hard to return it. It makes you relive what happened, but it's not hard to return it. And when my son, Bo, died, he, he was my soul. And, um, but the other piece of it was with Bo, because he had gone through it as a kid with me and he knew he was dying, is that he said to me, he said to me, that's why I wrote the book about my son. He said, promise me, Dad. Not a joke, promise me, Dad. He said, I'm gonna be okay no matter what happens. And he knew he had only months. But he said, Dad, promise me you're gonna be okay. I knew what he meant. He didn't want me to walk away from the things I've devoted my whole life to. He didn't, it wasn't run for president, Dad. It was Dad, 
Don't stop doing what you've fought for your whole life. Don't stop being engaged in trying to make things better, Dad. He knew I'd take care of his family and his wife and my grandchildren, but he wanted to know. And for me, what I found is purpose matters. Have a purpose. Know what you want to do as a consequence. How many of you have lost someone to cancer or someone you love or have cancer yourself? Well, though the TV's not on, but more than half of you, every single, you all understand this. But in some cases, it's really, really important to have professional help. One of the reasons I love Teddy Kennedy, I loved him so much. When my wife and daughter were killed, my kids were hospitalized that time I came, I came back into the, I stayed, the doctors let, let me stay in the room with them while they were recovering. And I came back after going out to do something, and there was one of the leading psychologists from Boston Children's, is it? I think it's Boston Children's, sitting there. I said, he introduced himself. I said, doctor, and he said, I said, Teddy asked me to come down. I'm happy to talk to your boys. People need help. And particularly if you feel completely isolated. You don't have the kind of... Uh, incredible loving surrounding capacity I had. My best friend in my world is my sister. By the time I got home after being in the hospital with the boys, she and her husband had given up their apartment and moved into my house and helped me raise my kids without asking a word, without anybody being asked. Five years later, no man deserves one great love, let alone two. I got remarried. We went on a three-day honeymoon in New York, which we got married by a Jesuit priest. We didn't know how to do it in Delaware. So many people had been so nice to us, we didn't invite. Came home, she and her husband had moved out without a word. We have an expression in my family. If you have to ask, it's too late. So I was incredibly fortunate. And all I can think about is all those people out there today. Think how many people got up today facing horrible circumstances raised their kids, moved on, did their jobs, but they need help. And by the way, I tell you what works. If you know somebody, just going over and hanging around. Just being there. Don't pretend you know you're an expert. Just being there. Showing up on the day that she or he needs to go to work and they don't have anybody to babysit. Take a day off and help them. Shovel their walk. Simple acts of kindness have profound impacts on how people respond. In my, and I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. <laughs> Mr. Vice President, we thank you for your time on Conversation with the Candidate. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.